Marvelites. You're listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 430. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I am Lorraine Sink, and we're going to talk about Marvel. Why would we do that? Because this is This Week in Marvel. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff from <laughs> comics to TV to movies, video games, like pretty much whatever's happening this week, you guys. It's very exciting. Yeah, and this week specifically, we want to get into Atlantis attacks. Yes, this whole Atlantis attacks thing is kind of fascinating to me. We're going to get into that a little bit later, but there's, you know, so much more to talk about. Oh, yeah. Like uh, this whole year, it's 2020, so we're talking about multiverses. Yeah. My or favorite... all of the alternate dimensions in the Marvel Universe. We're also going to have a special guest this episode. Yeah, our friend Greg Pak is coming by. Yeah. But hey, there are things that we're hyped about this week, comma, including news, That's colon. right. <laughs> I tried to do it like you do it. Thank you. It's really good. Uh, yeah, we are getting close to the release of Marvel Studios' Black Widow in May, which means we're getting that merch, baby! Sweet merch for a sweet, sweet movie. Yeah, we posted up some stuff. There's a new batch of clothing, toys, home goods, everything that you could possibly want tied to Marvel Studios' Black Widow movie. We're pretty sure there will be some cool Black Widow stuff out of that. And there's also cool Black Widow stuff coming out of comics. Black Widow number one is coming in April, written by Kelly Thompson, who is so excellent. She writes Captain Marvel and Star. There's going to be art by Elena Casa Grande, she's new to Marvel? She's relatively, you know, like somewhat new to the industry. So this is a, a huge, big push for her. She's amazing. If you, I've um, seen the art. It's yeah, really beautiful. The art for the Black Widow comic is great. But like if you just go to check her out on social media and stuff like that, she's she's fantastic. I also think this is really fun. It takes place in San Francisco, which I think of Black Widow's early days where she was like hooking up with Daredevil and she was living in San Francisco and she worked in like fashion. So that's like a fun callback to her old days. Uh, what else we love are new comics coming in April. We have more announcements. Marvel Zombies Resurrection, which is really cool. The Marvel Zombies Rise Again, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by Leonard Kirk. It's a four-issue limited series. The corpse of Galactus reaches planet Earth carrying a cannibalistic virus. Spider-Man and a whole bunch of other heroes go up against the threat. I read this first issue, and it is terrifying. It's really good, really messed up, very dark. Um, also, hope you have a strong gag reflex. Like, <laughs> some of these stories, I'm like, but in, like, a great fun way. <laughs> and another book coming in April is Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 17, written by Saladin Ahmed with art by Carmen Cañero. I love Carmen's work. This issue of Miles Morales' Spider-Man lets us explore what life is like for Brooklyn's teen Spider-Man in an outlawed tie-in. So outlawed, if you don't know, is the teens have basically teen heroes are being told like, hey, you need a driver's license to drive a car. You should be regulated and, you know, like get authorization to hero up. Um, if you have to get permission from your parents to get a job, I do I kind of agree. It's, right? I don't want children putting their lives on the line for me. But also, like, they need training. They need a little bit of help. I'm excited, actually, to have this debate and, and yeah. talk about it more. And, of course, Miles is going to have his opinion, as you'll see throughout Outlawed. All the other big teen heroes ha are taking sides in this. Also announced this week, which you can find on Marvel.com, there's a new Werewolf by Night, number one, coming in April, and uh, some new Marvel's Snapshot issues, X-Men and Captain America. We're going to have links to all that stuff on the website, and you can check that out. We have one more piece of really big, really cool, very exciting news 
to share with you right now. Oh my God, this is very, very important to Ryan, so I'm just going to let him run with it. Synopsis cast announcements for Marvel's MODOK brand new show coming to Hulu. The synopsis reads, In Marvel's MODOK, the megalomaniacal supervillain MODOK has long pursued his dream of one day conquering the world. But after years of setbacks and failures fighting the Earth's mightiest heroes, MODOK has run his evil organization AIM into the ground. Ousted as AIM's leader, while also dealing with his crumbling marriage and family life, the mental organism designed only for killing is set to confront his greatest challenge yet, a midlife crisis. It is going to be a fun one. Oh my I'm gosh, really excited. You guys. Does it say who the showrunner is there? Because I think that's important. Jordan Blum is showrunner. Uh, he worked on Community, and he's just delightful. He knows his moral continuity very well. And isn't Patton Oswald also working with him? On- oh, yes. Patton Oswald is MODOK. He is voicing our hero, MODOK. What perfect casting. This is just the tip of the iceberg. The casting is bananas. It's full of so many good, amazing, funny, talented people. I'm so excited to see this. And we're going to bring you some really cool stuff from the show in the coming months. Yeah, so more on that soon. But let's talk about the top books from this week's episode of Marvel's Pull List, Ryan. The, yes. The podcast that you do with Tucker. Yes, the top books are Guardians of the Galaxy number one, Captain Marvel number 14, Ruins of Ravencroft, Dracula number one, and Atlantis Attacks number one. Yeah, you guys subscribe to Marvel's Pull List with Ryan and his friend Tucker wherever you get your podcasts. And that includes Pandora. Also, you can watch the video versions over on Marvel.com. But let's talk about Atlantis Attacks because that's what we're doing today. That's our big talk. Yeah. Big talk. Let us take you back in time to the year 1989. In 1989, Marvel Comics published a truly wild superhero crossover storyline, which was running through most of their summer annuals uh, and a few regular issues that was called Atlantis Atlantis Attacks. Mm, That was good for drama. The backdrop of it is as follows. It starts in Silver Surfer Annual number two by Steve Englehart and Mark Bagley. So the Silver Surfer is trying to retrieve his surfboard and ends up, whoopsie, freeing the deviant high priest Gar. Gar? Gar? It's G-H-A-U-R. And because this is a comic book, we don't know the pronunciation other than in our hearts and minds. Can we agree yes. to call him Guar? Guar, yeah. Like, like, like the, the band? band. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, from, from here on, this episode, we will call him Guar. But if you want to Google him, it is G-H-A-U-R. Yeah, you're welcome. So he is a deviant. And if you don't know the deviants, they're a bunch of creepy, crawly, grossy dudes that live in space. And it turns out the deep sea. Uh, Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. They, uh, yeah. They, they've. You look like you were going to protest against me saying that they're grossy dudes. Well, look. They, they, they. You are beautiful. Right? Like. (laughs) They they tend to mostly be jerks, yeah, and they kind of grossies, but sort of like nature versus nurture. And they were like so they're from they were a toxic der- environment. Deviants. Yeah, they were called deviants from the start. They didn't have a shot. Yeah, but they lean into All it. Right. This is not a conversation about <laughs> deviants. What All else? right, so Silver Surfer and Guar fight. Yeah, then he runs away to Earth. Guar, he he's this. If you want to visualize him. He's a big blue guy with a cool, like, house coat on, and his head is big. Maybe we should just call him Noggin. Ooh. So anyways, it turns out Guar is a deviant from Lemuria. Lemuria is where the deviants live in the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. 
It's kind of like Atlantis, but they're bluer and meaner. Yeah. So hold on to that. Lemuria is a really interesting part of the Marvel universe yeah. and Marvel history because it has weird ties to a whole bunch of things. Like it actually ties back to the Hyborian Age uh, and Conan mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. It has ties to the snake god Set, which is really important to this story and yeah. to some other stuff that we're going to talk about. It was the site of the Great Cataclysm. And that is a, a big part, the second host of Celestial. The second time they came to Earth, the Deviants were like, ah, we're going to fight you. And the Celestials were like, no. And they just they basically sink Lemuria. Because at first, mm-hmm. before it was underwater, it was just a regular, it was like the continent on the planet. And the Celestials go, boop, and they knock it down. I kind of think about the Deviants almost like the monsters from Pacific Rim. Because they're like space monsters that come from the ocean. Interesting. Um, so that's kind of how I think of them. And they're a bunch of big grossies. Yeah. But Guar ends up telling Lyra, who's a royal within Lemuria, that he's trying to recreate this thing called the Serpent Crown, which you kind of mentioned the god Set. He's a serpent snake god. Set is a seven-headed massive snake god. Picture one body starting with a tail and spreading into seven huge snake heads. But the serpent crown is this thing that gives you lots and lots of power slash lets you mess everything up slash kind of ends the world. It's a whole bunch of stuff. Think of There's it, a lot of plot to it. Yeah, 100%. Think of it like on the level of a maybe a little less powerful cosmic cube. You can't alter reality, yeah, but yeah. it's very it's like this weird thing that can affect people. It has a lot of power to it. Um, it also, in the spirit of the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Seven Brides show up for set because he has a mad band of ladies. There's a lot to it, you guys. Yeah. Atlantis Attacks gets real intense. I love it because it is kind of like from this era in the 70s and 80s when plot-heavy devices kind of just like go wild. And this is one of those moments. Yeah. So... To really get the crown going, to get set back, a whole bunch of stuff has to happen. So Guar, he goes to Atlantis to King Atuma. Atuma is this big, like, brawly dude. A who big is mean fish man. Big mean fish man. Perfect. He's in charge <laughs> of the Atlanteans at this point. And Guar is essentially like, hey, bro, why don't you and I get together? We'll attack the surface. We'll rule the sea. We'll rule the world. It'll be Atlantis above all. And, you know, maybe a little, little sauce for Lemuria. And he says this to Atuma, and Atuma's like, great, I'm just a brawler. I want power. I like this. I'm not the most clever fish in the sea. If you think about it, it's brilliant because he's like, listen, I've got this device. If the two biggest underwater societies come together, we can attack the surface and rule all. Like, that's a great deal. Yeah. But Guar, he has a different plan. So he wants to sacrifice the Atlanteans. Basically, he's telling Atuma one thing, but what he wants to do is send Atuma and all the Atlantean forces to decimate as much of the surface world as they can, attack them, sort of call the numbers, make it a little bit easier. He wants to turn humans into serpent men using an addictive drug. This is where the plot goes wild. Yeah, he's got like multi-layered plan. He's got, like, think of him. He's got a, a whiteboard. He's got all the different stuff <laughs> up there. He's Ted talking. Guar is like, I have a plan. Then he also wants to create not just a regular serpent crown. Oh, no. He wants to create a giant serpent crown using... Gathered serpent crowns from other universes. So he's... One ring to rule them all. Kind of, but it's it's like huge. It's 
size wise, because it's he has such a big noggin, he needs a large crown. He's even, compensating even bigger than his noggin. So they're just like serpent crown, serpent crown, serpent crown, serpent crown, putting them all together. That's his big plan, and he wants to turn the Marvel Universe's seven most prominent heroines into sets seven brides, which you mentioned before. I want to make sure we note who those brides were. Dagger, Sue Storm, Jean Grey, Scarlet Witch, She-Hulk, Storm, and Andromeda. If you don't know who Andromeda is, she was an Atlantean member of the Defenders. She had died. She came back. She inhabited another woman's body. She is also Atuma's daughter. She's awesome. She's not been around a lot. She would be a really cool underwater uh, hero to see more of. The first part of this event is Iron Man Annual Number 10. It's got Iron Man and Namor teaming up together. They're here trying to stop the Atlanteans, the villains, all that bad stuff. But Namor seemingly bites it in the first part of this. So he's taken off the board right away. It it is a big blow to the heroes because Namor's trying to, you know, he's a relatively good guy at this point, and he is trying to help. They knock him out. So it's it's a bad move for them. The story then goes on. It spans 17 issues across annuals, regular series issues. I think it crosses into like New Mutants and other stuff. Annuals for Amazing Spider-Man, Avengers, New Mutants, X-Factor, Thor, X-Men, Punisher, ton of them. But at the final battle in Fantastic Four Annual number 22, Namor returns. He's aided by the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, and some X-Men, and lots of heroes to fight the big bads, Guar and Lyra. Again, that is the Lemurian lady. Atuma and the Atlanteans have already been betrayed by Guar. So there are some power struggles as the baddies get real close to summoning Set, that snake guy. But instead, Guar just takes power from Lyra and ends up freeing a dude named Naga, a former Lemurian king and wearer of the serpent crown who's been dead for years. I love these stories because they're just like, what? New guy, new problem, deal with it. This is the last 20 pages of a 17-part story. Naga shows up and he's like, what's up? I'm Naga. And you're like, wait, where have you been? What's happening? It's bonkers. Also, Hold on to your hats or serpent crowns. But Naga goes crazy for power. He battles Guar, and this resulting battle energy blips them out of existence, I guess, with Lyra. They boop each other out. They just disappear. Yeah. There's no, like, no, like, scientists going, huh, so it's just like, well, I guess they're gone. And, and they're gone. how it it works. I love it. The seven brides of Set work together, all of those amazing heroines we were just talking about, and they toss the giant serpent crown over a cliff, which explodes, and Atlantis is left in ruins. So that didn't go great. The, the thing about that is, for the most of the story, as they get pulled together, like the first couple of issues are like gathering the brides, and then they just stand around in a circle, backs to each other, the seven of them, on like a rotating pedestal above the serpent crown. But this, at the end, they actually are able to do something. Right. So it's important that they they all work together. They push this massive serpent crown over a cliff. Yeah, but bad news, it explodes Atlantis. Yeah. Whoops. Anyways, Namor and his cousin Namorita go off in search of dispersed Atlanteans who have survived this attack. But we have a whole article on Marvel.com that covers a bunch of the story with links to the issues that we do have on Marvel Unlimited, which you guys can check out. We'll link it in the Marvel.com article for this episode. And in the show notes that go with the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I think is really interesting about this story, too, is that Lemuria has disappeared a lot from comics, but it used to be pretty important, especially the Namor stories. And this is like its last big hurrah in, in a way. 
So I just think it's interesting for the historical context to go back and read about Lemuria because it was like a really full part of the Marvel Universe yeah. for a while. Yeah, in Namor's old series, Naga was a big part mm-hmm. of it before he died. The Serpent Crown showed up a bunch. Set has this weird connection to all things and Lemuria at the heart of all of that. Uh, we do want to talk about the Marvel Omniverse and alternate universes. So what if volume two, number 25, is a really cool issue. It is released in May of 1992, three years after the event. It is written by Jim Valentino, who does a great cover, and it has got art by Rick Levins. And the question posed in the issue is, what if the Marvel superheroes had lost Atlantis attacks? So you take 17 giant issues, condense it into one horrific story. I love this book so much. It is a classic what if and like everything goes wrong that possibly could go wrong. Uh, You know, in these what if stories, there's one thing that changes that sort of is like a domino effect causing all kinds of stuff to spiral out of control. So this one, everybody dies. What happens is, remember we talked about Namor getting taken off the board at the Mm -hmm. beginning, but coming back at the end to save the day In this story, he is actually killed at the beginning. So no Namor means no rallying troops, no huge power. He's such an important part of the end of the story. He's not there to help out at the end of this. Set actually gets brought into reality and murders the Avengers. There's one part where Wonder Man is being pulled apart by two of the heads. Iron Man is being burned alive in his armor. One after one, the Avengers are falling. Thor is one of the few who survive. What ends up happening is a couple of the heroes are left. Rachel Summers is Phoenix. She battles Set, giant Set, who is now like Godzilla size, growing, growing, growing. The Phoenix fighting one-on-one, this beautiful full splash page. Set eats the Phoenix. This is not a happy ending. No. Set eventually gets kind of destroyed, but the brides give birth to the children of Set. Snake babies. Yep. And those snake babies go into other dimensions and start eating and destroying the other dimensions. So it's just like an infection across reality. I love how what ifs can be so joyful and so silly and so fun and so dark. Yeah. (laughs) And it really just depends. Like you flip a switch one way or the other. What happens? Yeah. Uh, You know what else is fun? Talking to Greg Pak. Greg came to talk to us about Atlantis attacks and, you know, so much more. He's also writing Star Wars Darth Vader, and he's been at Marvel for 15-plus years now, which is pretty incredible. He's the man who gave us Amadeus Cho. Yeah. So we're going to mostly be talking about the Agents of Atlas coming out of War of the Realms, leading into Atlantis attacks, tying into Swordmaster and Arrow and all kinds of fun stuff. And I also want to shout out Agents of Atlas as just like a really cool book and doing a lot for Asian representation with that team, I think is just really cool and something that I haven't seen a lot of. Yeah. Greg, hello. How are you? Hi. I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. You've been on the show before. Agents of Atlas, I think, is where I want to start because that's sort of the crux of a lot of stuff that's going on right now. Tell us a little bit about Agents of Atlas, especially the team, because the team is super fun. Well, cool. Thank you. Yeah, so back during the War of the Realms uh, event, 
we did a miniseries called War of the Realms, New Agents of Atlas. And um, for years, I'd wanted to do a uh, Asian-American team-up book, you know, with all these different Asian-American heroes in the Marvel Universe. And I'd sort of done a sort of a mini version of that uh, with Mahmoud Azrar in the Totally Awesome Hulk book, where we pulled together Amadeus Cho and a bunch of other Asian-American heroes. And they, they went out and got um, Korean barbecue and did karaoke and then fought aliens. It was awesome. Yeah, fought aliens who wanted to eat humans. Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, as exactly. you know, as you do, they were the protectors. You've, yes, exactly. They were the protectors. I, I just loved doing that story so much, and it got great response. And um, so we were kind of looking for a chance to do something more with them. Meanwhile, Marvel had been developing Korean and Chinese characters, Korean characters for the Marvel Future Fights game, and Chinese characters that were done for uh, with Chinese creators for Chinese web comics, Marvel Chinese web comics. So at a certain point, I got a call from, or I got an email from CB and, and Mark, um, and they were like, "Hey, we think CB Sibolsky, Marvel Comics editor in chief, exactly. Mark Panicia, one of our senior editors here." Yeah, and they uh, and they were like, "I think why don't we do this thing in uh, bring together, you know, these." characters you've been working with as well as these new characters and do it as a tie-in with this War of the Realms story because the War of the Realms had basically Thor space aliens attacking different or, or you know, mythological gods and goddesses attacking different parts of the world. And they were going to, a fire demon was going to be attacking Asia. So this seemed to make sense. And so we did it. And the first issue went to like four reprints. It was insanely successful. And Gang Hyuk Lim was the artist. And that series went really well. And so we got to do a second series, which we just wrapped up called Agents of Atlas. And now we're doing Atlantis Attacks, yeah. which is uh, a culmination of a lot of things. But basically, it's our heroes defending the Pan-Asian portal city of Pan. Oh, we're going to get into that. But I want to talk about the team. Because yes. oh, yeah, what, yeah. You know, what's, what's really cool, I think, about Agents of Atlas is how it started as sort of the nugget of the protectors mm -hmm. and built out from there. It's almost like three levels of characters. <laughs> the team is huge. Yes. It's a really big squad. Yeah, and that's the big challenge of it, frankly. You know what I mean? It, it's like, it's a little too much. I mean, <laughs> too much is always fun, right? Um, <laughs> and comics, comics should be big and crazy. But yeah, so we have this kind of core group of Asian American heroes from that, that come from the Protector storyline, including Amadeus and Silk and Shang-Chi and Jimmy Woo. And Jimmy Woo becomes the sort of, the kind of pivot character in the, in the storyline. I, I guess if you had to pick one character whose emotional story you're following the most, it's Amadeus. But Jimmy is the, the plot key character mm -hmm. because he's Marvel's oldest Asian-American hero. He might He's one of Marvel's oldest heroes, period. And he was always remarkable because he was a non-stereotypical Asian-American character who was, uh, he was a secret agent. He's awesome. He was kind of Nick Fury before Nick Fury in a lot of ways. And so over the years, he's had his hands in a lot of different secret places in the Marvel Universe. And he was the head of the Agents of Atlas in this book that uh, Jeff Parker did with a bunch of different artists, including um, Gabe Hardman and Carlo Pagulan and, and a bunch of other folks. So Jimmy has pulled together another group, including these Asian-American heroes, but also including these different heroes from other parts of Asia. And that that's where the book got kind of crazy fun in a way. I mean, I always loved writing, you know, this, this interesting group of Asian-American heroes. And it was fun because you had these different generations. You know, we were able to do this kind of fun stuff with Shang-Chi and Jimmy sort of being like the uncles and then these younger heroes being, you know, like. And, and so there's this kind of interesting generational conflict, which is something you see in first, second third generation immigrant communities, you know, and, and it was just a lot of fun. You know, they're fighting over the check and all that, yeah. and all that kind of food stuff. Food and like, you yeah. know, child, like going after the same thing. It's just it's real fun. Exactly. But now with this expanded group, 
I mean, it's a big, crazy superhero team up, but it's also about the Asian diaspora, you know, which is something that's relatable to any immigrant community. So, so now you've got folks who are from born and raised in Korea, as well as Korean Americans. You've got, and we introduced Wave, who is a Filipina superheroine. One of it's been a while since Marvel's had any uh, Filipino superheroes introduced, and I think she's the first one to ever show up on covers. She's been a big part of this series, and I, it will be an even bigger part in the Atlantis Attacks book that's coming up. I would imagine, considering her powers with water and you know controlling water and exactly. all that stuff, she's exactly. a cool look too. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Linil Yu co-created her. He's an amazing Filipino comics artist, one of the greatest Marvel artists period and he brought all kinds of details to her that I would never have come up on my you know obviously would never have come yeah. up on my own I'm a Asian American dude from the US he's a Filipino dude who who brought in like certain Filipino elements in her costume design and everything and it's yeah. it's just been the whole thing has been a, a thrill yeah and you mentioned like the characters coming in from other media so yes. we've got from the video game side yeah so on the, uh, we've got Luna Snow who is a uh, K-pop star with ice powers or snow powers and then there are um, Crescent and Io Crescent is a kid who's a uh, uh, taekwondo expert, but she's got a magic mask, and when she puts the mask on, this big ghost bear sort of appears behind her and mimics her moves. And it's so and, fun! Yeah, it's like kid with a giant ghost bear, like, yeah, like a martial yeah. arts kid with a giant ghost bear. Can't That's go great. wrong. And they're both um, from a Marvel Future fight. Yep. And, and also uh, White Fox, who is a, a character who's been around before, but has sort of come to new prominence in that game as well. She's kind of like a Korean Black Widow, but she's also a fox goddess. Yes, <laughs> so. a very important distinction <laughs> yes, right there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then from from the Chinese comics, we've got Arrow and Swordmaster. Yeah. Arrow is A-E-R-O. She is uh, Shanghai's greatest superheroine. She's the defender of yeah. Shanghai. She's an architect who has wind powers. And then uh, Swordmaster is this crazy kid with a big sword. Yeah. Uh, and the Arrow big and magic sword. Big, cool magic sword. Real weird stuff. We have a uh, series for both of them yes. right now as well. And it's cool because Arrow feels very... Peter Parker-ish and Spider-Man-ish in a lot of ways. She's balancing a lot of things. And oh, like yeah, her with life the private and life. And the, her yeah, private yeah. life and stuff, which is really fun. And then Swordmaster is just, he's so inept and so young and trying to, like, stumble through things and everybody else. There are a lot of really fun stories going on with those characters, mm -hmm. even outside of, of this. But it's all kind of coming together now as mm -hmm. we're getting into Atlantis. Yes, exactly. So it's, uh, it's, it's been a kick. As you've been starting to write all these characters and put them together, are there any breakout favorites? You know, we were like, you know what? I feel like when I read you writing Silk, I'm like, there's I, a, a fondness for Silk yes. I can, I, that is palpable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I was going to say Silk. Silk is a lot of fun. She's basically the uh, another kid who was on the field trip with Peter Parker, and she got bit by a uh, radioactive spider. After I guess she got bit by the same spider after it bit Pete. Her backstory includes her like being sort of like hidden away in a bunker for ten years or twenty years or something. No, not yeah. not twenty years, about ten years. Yeah, about ten years. Yeah. So she's kind of got this sort of a bit of a knife tay about her, you know, in the sense that she's been sort of literally shielded from the world for quite a while. But she's also a little older than Amadeus, so she's a little, you know, a little bit wiser in some ways. But yeah. the, the two of them have just a really fun dynamic, and I just love writing them. She's got a lot of common sense, but she's also got, you know, a little fire in her belly and all that kind of stuff. She's a big fangirl. Like, she loves the... Uh, She's a big Luna fan. Uh, all right. So you mentioned the Portal City of Pan, <laughs> yes. which is such a cool idea. Please <laughs> explain what that is, because that's been a, a major, that has been right. the, the focal point of the Agents of Atlas. Basically, a billionaire named Mike Wynn 
from the big wind company has uh, flipped a switch and uh, activated his mysterious tech and created the portal city of Pan, which is basically a bunch of little slices of uh, different Asian neighborhoods from around the world stitched together kind of virtually. Basically, there are these um, portals that connect all of these different parts of, of the world and create a little patchwork city. These different parts of these cities remain where they are in, in the real world, but if you have a Pan Pass... You can basically walk through and access all these portals. You can perceive this city as a whole. And in the same afternoon, you can, you know, walk from Hilo, Hawaii to, to Madripoor to, uh, you know, Shibuya to wherever, you know. to it's a dream. To, yeah, exactly. It's a, like it's a dream, yeah. especially if you're, if you like food or, or exactly. like culture yeah, or yeah. like seeing, you know, so all the stuff. It's and, and that's the way it's pitched. You know, like Mike's, he's going to make a t- billions of dollars as the greatest tourist uh, experience ever. But of course... It gets attacked by dragons, and nobody can figure out why, and our heroes end up having to come in and defend it, and they've got all these questions about, like, what is this guy really doing? And and then there are refugees, and it gets complicated, and, and the whole politics of it becomes suspect, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and the thing that powers the city is a major point that drives us into Atlantis attacks. Yes. When you get to the end of, of that Agents of Atlas series, and you see what's going on, me as a reader is like... Oh, I love this idea so much, but I hate what's happening. And yeah. it's like that great, there's this goodness that has come out of something so terrible. Yeah. I think that's always the thing with Amadeus stories that I've, I tend to come back to that a lot where, I mean, he's essentially a very optimistic character. He's a young dude. His whole thing with um, becoming the Hulk was, uh, I'm going to take over the powers of being the Hulk from Bruce Brander because Bruce just sees it as a big tragedy. But you know what? I know what I'm doing. I can be the Hulk. I'm going to be the totally awesome Hulk. I'm, it's going to be great. And that, that was his whole deal. But the world is not so simple. Amadeus is a lot of fun for me to write because I remember when I was 19. And when I was 19, I was insufferable. I thought I knew everything. <laughs> I thought I thought it had all figured out. You know what I mean? And and that's Amadeus. But when you actually go from, you know, just talking to your friends about how you've got everything figured out to having the power to try to implement these things in the real world, the real world reveals itself to be full of shades of gray that you didn't really comprehend, no matter how smart you are. Yeah. You know? Um, and, uh, and so that's... That's Amadeus's experience again and again, is sort of getting himself into situations where he thinks he can fix it all, and maybe he can't. Yeah, especially now because he has been tasked with leading the Agents of Atlas team by Jimmy Woo. It's just great to see where he's gone, the ups and the downs, and and seeing true character growth over these 12, 13 years. Yeah, Yeah, of course it it is, but... To see it and to see it actualized is is wonderful. Uh, Atlantis Attacks, brand new series. First issue has just released this week. It is a five-issue limited series by Greg as well as Ario Anandito. Uh, it's spinning out of Agents of Atlas as well as Swordmaster. So there's bits and pieces. Yeah. I, I, and, and Arrow, too. And Arrow, yep. Yeah. So it's, it's really cool if you are reading these various titles, seeing how all the threads come together. I got to give... Shout out to the Swordmaster storyline with Ares has been super fun. Oh, cool. Watching Thank that you. with Ares' kid and just quirky and fun and uh, been really digging that. Yeah. And then, like, the side story that was in Arrow was really, like, creepy. And there's this story of creatures and, and really tying into Atlantis attacks that was upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> in a good yeah, way. Like, yeah, you want to read the story, yeah. but you're like, man... People are getting hurt. It's, yeah, it's that's brutal. you know, it's 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 drama, baby. Yeah, it's serial drama, cliffhangers, danger. Yeah, but yeah, and, and shout out to Alyssa Wong who co-wrote those Arrow backup stories with me, and Fonda Lee who co-wrote the uh, the Swordmaster backup stories. They're both amazing. Yeah. So we've been building to this. What is going on now in Atlantis Attacks? 
I can reveal that we discover that in order to power the portal city of Pan, Mike Wynn has done something terrible. And that terrible thing that he has done incurs the wrath of Prince Namor or King Namor of Atlantis. Which, like, in the scale of people you do not want to piss off in the Marvel Universe, it's like Celestials. (laughs) It is maybe Galactus. uh, It is Doom. Yeah. And Namor. But Hulk might be a little sure. bit, slightly yeah, above Hulk Namor. Hulk a little bit higher. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, Hulk is more easily distracted. <laughs> I mean, depending on what state he's yeah. in. You know what I mean? But but Namor, yeah, I mean, if he's, you know, you mess with him and if you mess with Atlantis, mm-hmm. you're in trouble. Yeah. So they're in trouble. And, you know, as we've talked about before, it's this kind of situation where, you know, Amadeus and the team are, you know, thrust into this situation where they have to defend a community that they've come to love and that needs them and that if they don't defend this community, people are going to suffer horribly, possibly die. At the same time, this community has done something terrible, or yeah. at least the people who run this community. So, you know, how do they, how do they manage those shades of gray? And what, what, what's going to happen when all this comes down is what we're going to find out. Yeah. And um, so the two fulcrum heroes in the middle of all this are Amadeus and Wave. Mm-hmm. Because as you say, Wave has um, – she's, she's kind of in the middle as a hero with water powers who is still kind of, you know, finding her place in the world and also is uh, – you know, she's introduced to the glories of Atlantis for the first time in this storyline, and, I mean, and that's that's got to be kind of mind blowing if you, you know, if you if you have these water powers and now you're suddenly encountering Atlantis. Yeah, and you mentioned the the story of Pan. There's also this interesting refugee story that is at the core of what makes this so difficult because there are people coming from Madripoor yep. who have nothing, who are trying to flee oppression and terror and horrible living conditions, and they find this place that can potentially give them that, mm-hmm. and then how do you take that away from them? Right, exactly. It's and a they've very also... good, fam- like, core drama, familial, human story. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to raise the stakes and find a way to complicate things, you know? I, I, I think about this all the time. Like, I think every once in a while, you know, somebody asks, what do you write about or what do you, you know, what are your themes or whatever? And I don't necessarily think about that when I'm doing stuff, but then when I go back and look over the stuff I've done over the years, I at different points in time, I'm like, oh, that's what I was doing. And I, I kind of had that moment a little while ago, and I was like, oh, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm writing about people trying to do the right thing in a complicated world. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And that, that, I, I think partly that's a factor of, um, of writing uh, hero sto- superhero stories. I mean, heroes right there in the name, right? Yeah. V- very few things in this world can be solved just by going and punching somebody, you know? Very few. Very um, few. And yet that is the, uh, the bread and butter of a superhero story. But, sure. So there's real interesting conflicts there. But, that, I mean, you know, that's, that's where great stories come from. So I love the title of the story. Of course, it's Atlantis Attacks. It plays very well into what has happened. That first issue with Namor, you know, there's a great two-panel sequence in the issue. And, like, one of Namor is, like, shadowed and he's just so <laughs> angry. And then he attacks. And we live up to the title. Yes. But the title is also the name of a, gosh, now 30-year-old yeah. Marvel Comics crossover, Atlantis Attacks. Did you come into the story saying we want to use the Atlantis Attacks name? Or someone say, let's call this Atlantis Attacks? Yeah, connection? it's more more the latter, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it's it. we we did have some version of, I mean, we were bouncing around different names. And Atlantis and Attacks were both in those various names we were bouncing around. I mean, we were looking at Atlas versus versus Atlantis and different things like that. And at certain points, somebody was like, let's just call it Atlantis Attacks. Let's just do that. Yeah. They're like, okay, let's do that. Since it has that historical hook, it does sort of send a big signal that this is also a Namor story. And it's also consistent with his sort of history of 
conflicts with the surface world and with with different folks. So yeah, um, yeah I mean it's it's fun. I, I do probably want to put out there while it is an Amor story, there is Atlantis. We probably probably won't see Set or yeah, it, it's it's not a Serpent not Crown. a Set, not Serpent Crown, Snake yeah. People, Lemurians, the weird. Seven Brides stuff <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. happening in Atlanta, the original Atlantis attacks, but at its core, it's a Namor story. And for me, you got me. Hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> See that? Uh, is oh, with Namor. Uh, I like that little nautical thing. Yep. Uh, <laughs> you, are you a Namor fan? Were you a Namor fan? Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. How can you not be? Namor, yeah. just. I, I'm old enough that back in the day, it was hard to get sequential comics. I mean, you go down to um, 7-Eleven, and sometimes they'd have stuff, sometimes they wouldn't, and all of that. And, and the only collected comics that were out were that old Origins of Marvel Comics collection, which had a bunch of the Origins of Marvel Comics in a, in a paperback. So I reread and reread those early Namor stories again and again. And just, yeah, I mean, he was always just a ton of fun. And that whole world building thing of this another world sort of thing yeah. is always really compelling. Also because he's uh, he's so bad tempered, you know, <laughs> he, he behaves very badly. Very peevish. Uh, which, is, you know? uh, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, that, that stuff is a, is a kick. As I've gotten older, I uh, like I read a bunch of Namor stuff that I hadn't read before when we were doing the uh, Fred Van Lente and I were writing the Incredible Hercules series because Namor, we, we did a storyline with Namor in it. And there were a couple of things that jumped out at me. I mean, one, I, there was a story where Namor fights Hercules, and Namor's all brooding and everything, and, and Hercules basically picks a fight with him. And they have this big fight, and at the end of it, Hercules is like, I've given you the gift of battle. Now you feel better, right? <laughs> and Namor's like, ah. You know, but, but it's like, I mean, it was just a ridiculous storyline, where sure. it's like, which was just a lot of fun. But that whole, the way that Namor can play with different characters and play off of them, yeah, I mean, he's a great character. He's yeah. a great character. Yeah. He's so much fun. One last thing I want to ask about Atlantis Attacks. Will we see the OG Agents of Atlas? Yes, we will. Yeah. Yes, we will. Jeff Parker, Leonard Kirk, and a bunch of other artists did the first Agents of Atlas series, which took a bunch of old, like, 50s characters mostly and brought them into the current Marvel Universe. And they, you know, there was, like, a fighting gorilla and Venus and, and Namora and, and Robot Jimmy Man. And Robot Man. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, kind of a quirky cult favorite. Basically, ever since we launched that War of the Realms New Agents of Atlas book, I had this plan in the back of my head that eventually we're going to have the old... Age of Atlas and the new Age of Atlas meet, and it's happening in this series. Again, with big consequences. By the end of this series, things will be different. So you don't want to miss this series. Yeah. But from Atlantis, we have to go to a galaxy far, far away, (laughs) Mr. Pock. We have to talk about your new Darth Vader (laughs) series. You've been in Star Wars realm for a little bit while now. You got to do a cool story with Phil Noto. Yeah. You know, now it's you and Rafael Ayanko coming in February. Um, And this is part of our new Star Wars direction where it is all post-Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. It's a huge gift to be able to work on this book. I mean, I've loved all the Star Wars stuff. I got to do these a bunch of one-shots as part of the Star Wars Age of Rebellion uh, storyline, and um, which was a great way to get into it because I got to work with all those classic characters from the original trilogy and tell all these one-shot stories, which is really hard to do, actually. You know, to do eight one-shots is a lot harder than doing an eight-part story, you know? Um, you have because, to resolve everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're basically telling eight stories instead of, one, you know, one or two, right? Um, but I loved it, and they, they keep throwing Star Wars stuff at me, and I'm thrilled. So so this Darth Vader book takes place um, in the immediate aftermath of Empire. At the end of Empire, we all remember probably the most famous scene in all of Star Wars where Luke gets his hand lopped off and he finds out that Vader is his father. Spoiler alert. Sorry if this is your first time hearing this. And Luke's, you know, he's he's shattered, you know, by this revelation. He, Vader says, you know, come with me. Together we'll rule the galaxy. 
Luke's like, nope. And um, and he drops off down into the, you know, the big shaft beneath Cloud City. And we always think of that from Luke's point of view. You know what I mean? Because this is a, this is a huge turning point for Luke. It changes everything. But it's also this massive turning point for Vader. And that's the story we get to tell. Because Vader puts it all on the line here, man. You know what I mean? He's, he's basically like, come with me. We'll overthrow the Emperor. You and me. Son, you know what I mean? Like, I got a family, you know? And, and Cats if you. Cats in the cradle, in the <laughs> suit, you know? Like, it's a little bit of that. Yeah. And if you're a prequel kid, I mean, if you, know, if you, if you watch those prequels and if you've, like, sort of taken in the full tragedy of Darth Vader, you know that this moment with Vader reaching out to Luke or offering this to Luke, it, it's paralleled in the prequels when he offers the same thing to Padme, you know what I mean? And in both cases, he loses. I mean, Vader's this amazing character because he's so freaking evil. But, you know, you unpack this story and you look at it bit by bit and it's, it is a tragic love story. It's, it's about love, the whole Vader story and about this thwarted love and, and how twisted he becomes as a result. Anyway, so what we're going to be able to do in the story is see what Vader does in the aftermath of this terrible loss and rejection. And being Vader, what he does is he decides he's going to kill everybody who had any role in hiding the existence of his son. Oh, you know, cool. Because, yeah, I mean, Vader is, he's known about Luke being his son for a while. But after Luke finally rejects him, he's, he's thinking back and he's thinking about how do we get to this place, you know, where this son of mine who has all of this power that I can sense, I can sense the force in this one, the force is strong in this one, right? He should be with me, you know, together we could rule the galaxy. But despite all this strength, he's weak. He can't accept it. He can't go there. And then because all these people who screwed him up, you know what I mean? All these people who made him weak. And so Vader's going to go find out what's going on. And of course, since this is a Vader story, it's, it's wrenching because the deeper he goes into tracking backwards towards Luke's origins, by necessity, he's pushing back into his own origins. It's a terrifying and painful journey of... of vengeance and tragedy. So. I can't wait. That is February 5th, Star Wars Darth Vader series coming out. But we got to move on this year on This Week in Marvel. Every week we're talking about the Marvel Omniverse, the wide array of possible futures, paths, and, and different <laughs> uh, paths that everything can take. And so I, I we asked you, what is your favorite Marvel alternate universe? I actually got to write a whole book. Uh, well, we're going to get into it. Oh, okay. I have, I, I had to stop pulling different Earth designation numbers because <laughs> right. you just went ham in Extreme, which I loved. It was so good. It was so much fun. Extreme X-Men, which was a, a book with basically Dazzler is the, the captain of the team and she's leading this group of alternate universe X-Men on a quest to kill 10 evil Xaviers. So it was, a, it was ridiculous. The pitch in the world. We got to do so many ridiculous things. It's you know? nuts. They're like rereading <laughs> some of them and going through some of those. I was like, the dinosaurs and the this and the, like, you know, the, the Howlet and, and yeah, Hercules. It's just Howlet. so much fun. Yeah, we had like a robots take over the universe thing. We had a um, sort of a Civil War era black Cyclops who was a Buffalo soldier. We had a um, – we had like, a, like an adorable – um, pony universe where everybody was an adorable pony that like <laughs> it's ridiculous. But from when I was, you know, when I was growing up, the gold standard, of course, was Days of Future Past. You know, I mean, and, and images from that book are still you know, sort of seared upon my brain. You know, that whole dystopia with the murderous Sentinels and the X Men on the run, and they killed Wolverine. What? Yeah. What? Just 
brutal. Like, yeah. it, oh man. And this in this issue, everybody dies. <laughs> and, like I remember seeing that for the first time and go, wait, what? <laughs> like I it has such an effect. Yeah, yeah. It's a great pick. Uh, you know, looking through some of your work to try to, you know, look at some of the alternate universes you worked on. Of course, Iron Man House of M. Yep. Uh, that would be oh, yeah. Earth. Five eight one six three. Oh, I, good because I was I thought it was five eight one six four. Oh no, I see. I, I you got me there. Good. I did the math. Uh, <laughs> Marvel sixteen oh two, the New World. Oh yeah, uh, that Earth is three eleven. Uh, you did What If Planet Hulk, which had two stories in it, I believe. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's right. Uh, so there was two in there. You know, sort of like what if Banner dies at the beginning and then. Yeah. What? Yeah. What if? What if? What if the Hulk died at the right. end of, of Planet Hulk and not Kyra? And so Kyra, yes. you know, his his queen comes to wreak havoc on planet Earth. Yeah. In vengeance. And then what if Hulk landed on the peaceful planet that exactly. he was always yeah. supposed to land on? Exactly. Uh, so that's cool. You can check that out. These are all on Marvel Unlimited. And uh, what if Submariner story, oh, yeah. which was cool. That it's a what if series from two thousand five, two thousand six, where they're all on the same. Earth. It's all Earth 717. Oh, yeah. Earth 717. And you did the Namor story, which ties back to Atlantis Attacks now because it's a Namor story. It is what if Namor, like, he grew up on land living Mm -hmm. with his father. Where does that put his allegiances and everything? And then, of course, Extreme X-Men with so many alternate (laughs) possibilities and wildness. It's super duper fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. No, we appreciate you coming in and getting wacky and fun with us and uh, (laughs) keep doing more great comics. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. See you, Greg. Big thanks once again to Greg Pak. Definitely check out Atlantis Attacks. First issue on sale this week, and it is terrific. We got to get to our question of the week for you guys to answer. Next week, it is all about the end. What is your favorite the end story? Or what is your, your favorite, like, final end story for a character? You know, we could think of all the the end comics that we've released, which is Marvel Universe, the end, Punisher, the end, Hulk, the end, Iron Man, the end, X-Men, the end, Fantastic Four, the end, all the current, the end Marvel, issues. the end. Marvel, the end. Very important. I know you are a big fan. I am, actually. We're going to get into fan, that yeah. next week. It's going to be very fun. You can think about the Last Avenger story or Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe or Deadpool Kills the Marvel Universe. Anything like that. Let us know what your favorite, the end story is. You can use the hashtag This Week in Marvel. Email your pick to twimpodcast.marvel.com or send a message to our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel. We got a tweet in here from Simon Williams at Simon Seb saying, Hey, Marvel, isn't it time for another She-Hulk book? Feels like it is. Maybe have Kelly Thompson or Gail Simone write it. Have Adam Hughes draw it. I think that would do well. Wow. That's a... Specific request? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love Adam Hughes, but... He takes a little bit longer to put a book together. He's like a you got. He's a guy you give like a prestige project to, not necessarily, I, in my opinion, ongoing or have him do the greatest covers. He's doing he cover, does beautiful that cover covers. for Black Widow. It's just stunning. I would love to see him on an ongoing book, but it's but a tougher one. I would love She Hulk all the time. Give me more She Hulk always. Yeah. So for sure, heard right. Lance Presley at GL Presley says. Aren't the X-Men and Tony Stark essentially dealing with the same issues of identity right now? They're all dying and having clone bodies imprinted with backup consciousness. Crossover time? You know, it is. that's an interesting... That is an interesting take on it. Yeah, I think there's less existential crisis for most characters in the X-Men books. Although, I was reading an issue where they do address how one of the characters has been resurrected who had been dead for years and is having a hard time coming to grips with what the world is right now, which I think is a really fascinating story from that 
X-Men perspective, it is a different take than like Tony Stark, like I'm not real. It is more like I'm now back and everything else has changed. Well, and some of that too has to do with the freedoms of Krakoa. You know, having a mutant society allows you more freedom to do as you please, whereas Tony is answering to an American government. Yeah, and all kinds of other things. And his brother and a whole other thing. Yeah. Uh, Listen to last week's episode. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, We do have a great email in here from Samus, a.k.a. Sam. He says his email was titled Mischief. Hey, guys, I've been wanting some good Loki stories of late. What are your recommendations? Ooh. Well, go read Daniel Kibblesmith's story. Hopefully you are. That was good. That was four or five issues recently. Mm-hmm. There was the Loki Agent of Asgard story. We just released a full collection of that within the last couple of weeks. In my personal opinion, go read The Young Avengers by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. There's lots of young Loki in it. He's like a sassy teenage bad boy getting into trouble. I just love that book. It is a team book, but it's really good, delightful Loki I also like the story before that that was in Journey into Mystery, Journey into Mystery yeah. when he takes on a lot of different personas and he has to battle with his younger self and his older self in his many iterations. Yeah, there's there's tons of great Loki stuff in there. Um, the Loki limited series by Rob Rohde and Isad Rabish is mm. really cool. It's like three or four issues and tells a more like sinister, dark Loki story, but it's gorgeous. If you've never read that, that's definitely a good one to check out. Uh, and we also have to give a big thanks to Steve Asselman for his email. It is a long one. We can't read it here, but it was great. And we thank you, Steve. This episode of This Week in Marvel was produced by Persia Verlin and Zachary Goldberg. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to Atlantis. Whenever you're feeling underwater, why not visit Atlantis? Atlantis, it's damn. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.